Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. The next three episodes will be a three-part series on the infamous serial killer, Ted Bundy. After this three-part series, I'll be taking a break as I head down to CrimeCon 2023. After I return, I will be hosting three podcasts. This one, my True Blue Crime Investigates podcast, and a True Blue Crime Premium podcast for Patreon subscribers. There will be plenty of content in the last three months of the year, and I want to thank you all for making the first three months of this podcast such a success. I look forward to possibly meeting some listeners next weekend and in the years to come. But before we dive into this episode, let's cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The Volkswagen Beetle was introduced to the German people in 1938 as the everyday family car, capable of transporting German citizens across the extensive road network built across the country in the 1930s. Volkswagen, which means the people's car in Germany, built over 21 million of the original Beetles between 1938 and 2003. Under the orders of Adolf Hitler, Ferdinand Porsche designed the car after stealing the body concept from famed auto engineer and inventor Bella Berini, and demanded the car was able to carry two adults and three children at a top speed of roughly 60 miles per hour while achieving 32 miles per gallon. The result was the Beetle, a 25 horsepower five-seater that dominated German roads for over 30 years before the introduction of the Volkswagen Golf in 1974. The mass-produced car was cheap and readily available and made its way to America after Germany was rebuilt following World War II. Volkswagen Beetles reached their peak success in America during the early to mid-1960s, a time of peace, love, and the hippie movement. Variants of the Beetle, such as the VW bus, made cross-country trips to places like Woodstock and San Francisco during the culture revolution. But despite its popularity among those seeking peace and love, the VW Beetle has its dark side. Adolf Hitler had promoted his people's car and offered every family in Germany the opportunity to have their own car, a privilege at the time only afforded to the higher economic classes. A national savings campaign was promoted in which a German citizen could reserve a VW by claiming a stamp book. The buyer would then purchase stamps at the cost of five Reichsmarks, and when their stamp book was filled, they could turn in the book for their new VW Beetle. This turned out to be nothing more than a government-sponsored fraud, as the money went to fund Nazi Germany war preparation, and few, if any, citizens who filled the stamp books ever saw their VW they had been promised. A lawsuit against VW was filed by those duped out of their cars, but wasn't settled until 1962, and the winners received a 12% credit towards the purchase of a new VW, or roughly $400 off. The cash option was only $80, not a great investment on a $1,000 stamp book. In addition to the massive fraud perpetrated against the German people, the Beetle also became known for another very dark reason. 
It was the car of choice for one of the most infamous serial killers in American history. This monster of a man used the unsuspecting look of the car to lure teenage and college-aged women into his trap before assaulting and killing them. This is the story of Ted Bundy. Theodore Robert Bundy was born Theodore Cowell on November 24, 1946. His mother was Eleanor Louise Cowell, a 22-year-old single woman. She went by her middle name, and Louise was said to have given birth to Ted at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers. Despite many people trying to determine who Ted's father was, no one has been able to identify the man. His mother originally had a man named Lloyd Marshall, who was a traveling salesman and World War II veteran, on Ted's birth certificate, but she later had a second birth certificate done and no father was listed. And Louise herself claimed Lloyd Marshall may have been a man named Jack Worthington, who she dated for a short period, but he abandoned her once she learned she was pregnant. Another theory emerged that claimed Ted's father was actually his maternal grandfather, and Louise had become pregnant through incest. But this theory was reportedly proven false after a DNA test was conducted for a 2020 documentary. After leaving the home for unwed mothers, Louise sent Ted to live with her parents. This was done to avoid the shame cast upon single mothers at the time. The family spread the lie that Ted was a late baby of Louise's parents, which made Louise his much older sister. Even Ted was misled to believe his grandparents were his actual parents, and he would not find out the truth until much later in life. So while some contribute the discovery of his bastard inception to his terrible crimes, there are others who point to behavior Ted displayed well before that discovery that indicates Ted had severe issues even early in life. When he was around three years old, it was reported that he gathered up knives from the kitchen and put them around the bed of his aunt Julia, who he believed was actually another one of his older sisters. She woke up to the knives around her and the three-year-old Ted staring at her and smiling. There is great debate to this day about Ted's grandfather, Samuel. Some family members reported that he was a caring and gentle man, and neighbors referred to him as a fine man. However, Ted and some other family members reported that Samuel was an abusive man, prone to fits of anger and violence. There are claims that he would terrorize cats, beat up his wife and the family dog, and was known to be extremely racist. And to me, this reminds me of the case of Joseph D'Angelo. Some neighbors, family, and friends reported him as a model citizen, while others saw him as a monster even well before he was identified as the Golden State Killer. So while Samuel may have portrayed a good image for some, it's very likely the stories about him committing acts of abuse and violence had some level of truth to them, and Ted, who looked up to his father-slash-grandfather, would have normalized this behavior as a young child. Then, in 1950, when Ted was four years old, Louise left the family home with her son, likely destroying the ruse that they were brother and sister, and moved to Tacoma, Washington to live with cousins. The move was said to be at the suggestion of family members, but there's no concrete evidence as to why they moved. So before we get into his life in Washington, we'll cover a couple of things here. First off, this is the first series of episodes that I've named after the actual suspect. And there's a couple reasons for that. I said early on I would either never do that or try to avoid that. This case is so well known, I don't think I'm really giving any notoriety to Ted Bundy and the fact that he was executed over 30 years ago. 
Again, I don't think I'm really doing a ton of damage. And secondly, there's so many victims that it's not as if I could name it after a, a specific victim. And finally, his nickname was the Lady Killer. And I don't know, to me, for some reason, that just seems more derogatory than just referring to him by his actual name. So that's why these are called Ted Bundy. I know I said I wasn't going to give any notoriety to killers, but I'm going to make an exception in this case. And when we talk about Ted's childhood, again, I was actually left confused after researching it because there was a lot of emphasis given to the fact that this bastard status was kept from him for a while and that this ruse of him being the brother to his mother was supposedly something that was shattered later in life, but that was quickly squashed in the research because I can't imagine somehow Luis is going to leave with Ted when he's four years old, and, and even the fact that that happened makes me believe that there were some major issues going on inside of that household. And by that I mean if, if Samuel was this great father figure that was loving, was caring, and was taking care of, of the family, it wouldn't seem to me like that would be a situation where Luis would want to leave that situation. If Ted is being raised well, and they have a place to live, food on the table, and she can focus on her life, it just doesn't seem like a, a point in which you would just up and leave. And, and they were in Philadelphia at the time, and now they're going to all of a sudden go out to Washington State as a single mother of a four-year-old, creating a much harder life for herself. Again, maybe there was a good reason for it that didn't involve violence in that household, but to me, the fact that there's mention that the family suggested, strongly suggested that Luis take Ted and move out to Washington State makes me believe that whatever environment existed inside that house in Philadelphia, it was not a healthy one. And this is going to remove basically the one father figure from Ted's life and put him into a, a strange surrounding, again, now learning that who he thought was his older sister is actually his mother. He doesn't have a father. There's obviously going to be some psychological damage that's done as a result of this move. But shortly after arriving in Tacoma, Louise started a relationship with a man named Johnny Bundy, a cook at a local army hospital. Ted was said to have not adjusted well to the move and was even less thrilled about this new man in his mother's life. His disapproval was so strong that he once peed himself while throwing a temper tantrum in a public place. But this didn't stop Louise from marrying Johnny, and Johnny officially adopted Ted as his son, including giving him the last name Bundy. His new father and his mother would eventually have four biological children of their own during the 1950s. The family dynamics inside the Bundy household were described as tense, which is likely an understatement. As Ted grew up, he continued to reject Johnny as his father, and instead fantasized that his biological father was someone famous who would come take him away and give him a lavish lifestyle. Ted was said to be extremely materialistic and wanted expensive clothes and items, and Johnny's low level of education, intelligence, and wages prevented Ted from having the things in life that he wanted. It was said that he often provoked Johnny and made fun of him for what Ted saw as a low level of intellect and personal motivation. These provocations would often result in physical punishment doled out on Ted by Johnny, leading to further resentment. 
Outside of the home, Ted was seen several different ways by his peers. To some, he was a distant child prone to abusing animals. It was said he would buy mice from a pet store and then cage them and decide which ones to kill using torturous ways to end their lives. It was also reported that he once tied a stray cat to a clothesline, doused it in gasoline, and set it on fire. From these few accounts, we are already seeing parts of the McDonald Triangle in play. Wetting his pants in public meant he likely wet the bed at night, and the cat incident alone was indicative of both abuse of animals and fire setting. Ted was also known to dig what he called tiger traps, which were holes in the ground that he placed sharpened spikes into and then covered them up. He hoped that people would fall into the holes and injure themselves, and in at least one documented case, a small girl did fall into one of his holes and badly injure her leg. During one camp out with the Boy Scouts, Ted was said to have snuck up behind a fellow scout, and while he was known for trying to scare people, he flat out attacked the fellow scout, hitting him over the head with a stick. And, and this is actually going to be one of his modus operandi down the road here, striking people in the head with wood. So this is something that he developed a liking for as even a Boy Scout. And it's going to contribute to some people believing that he was committing acts of violence to possibly include murder at a very young age. He was also known for forcing younger neighborhood children to go into the woods with him where he would make them strip out of their clothing and then he would take their clothing and run away, leaving them alone, naked, and terrified. However, despite all this delinquent behavior, Ted wasn't a total social outcast. He was said to be accepted in school, although he wasn't popular, but he also wasn't a complete owner. He did well enough in school to earn decent grades and managed to stay out of trouble in school. But outside of his school, his teenage years were starting to be defined by his growing criminal behavior. He had developed an obsession with pornography. However, some would say this began when he discovered his grandfather's pornographic magazines when he was three years old. In middle school, he started digging through dumpsters around Tacoma, looking for pornography and adult-themed detective novels that centered around sexual assault and murder. He would sometimes bring his finds to school and was caught pleasuring himself in school closets by classmates. While he struggled with athletics, he wasn't good enough to make the school sports teams, but he developed a love for downhill skiing. Equipment for the sport was expensive, so he shoplifted the boots, skis, and clothing he needed. Lift tickets were also costly, so he forged lift tickets in order to ski nearby slopes for free during the winter. As his confidence in committing crimes grew, so did his exploits. He was caught trying to steal a car during high school, but was only given a warning for his behavior. It was likely the stolen car was going to be used to facilitate his obsession with skiing or possibly to assist him in one of his favorite pastimes, voyeurism. Ted had developed a proclivity for sneaking around and spying on women through windows. This behavior is often identified as an early warning sign for future sexual deviant behavior to include sexual assault and sexually related murders. And we'll take another pause here before we get into what some believe is his first murder and just talk about his time so far in Washington State. So as I mentioned, we have several indicators of different criminal behavior to include parts of that McDonald Triangle that could indicate somebody developing serial killer-like tendencies later in life. We've got this obsession with what appears to be torturing animals and others. 
which includes the mice, the cat that he lit on fire, the kids that he took off into the woods to, and then made them strip down and took their clothing. He, it was as if, even as a young child, he had this obsession with causing pain and misery to others. And we're going to see there, it's a combination of that and this materialistic desire that he has, all this shoplifting that he does. He's going to commit some acts of burglary. And even this obsession with this imaginary father. Uh, when I read this, I was, I was thinking back to uh, the very popular Marvel movies. And I think it's Guardians of the Galaxy. Chris Pratt's character, Star-Lord, doesn't know who his father is. And so he imagines as a child, or he's told as a child, that his father is David Hasselhoff. And there's, there's other movies out there, TV shows, where these... Children without fathers, especially boys, will imagine their father is John Wayne or somebody famous. There's another movie where the boy thinks his father is Bob Barker because that's who his mother tells him it, it is. But while those are movies, this is real life. This is Ted rejecting his adopted father, a man who was willing to try to be a father figure for Ted, but... Ted is so deluded in his mind that he won't accept Johnny as his father because he views Johnny as inferior. So he not only creates this idea that his father think he thought his father might be like Roy Rogers or somebody else famous at the time that was going to come in, rescue him from this life that he was living and give him anything that he wanted. All the money, all the, the cars, the electronics, everything that he wanted. So this is, again, an early theme. He's got this combination of desire to cause harm to others and an obsession with possessing items that he wants. Anything he assigns a value to, whether it be the ski equipment or this nice clothing. It was said he started shoplifting and stealing stuff at a very young age, and it was always to facilitate this obsession with having this materialistic lifestyle. And so by age 14, he, he's got this pattern, again, of, of the causing harm to others, of obsessing over things that he wants. And in 1961, when Ted was 14 years old, an eight-year-old girl named Anne-Marie Burr went missing from her Tacoma home during the middle of the night. Some people believe this was Ted's first murder, as he lived just a few miles from Anne-Marie's house, and he delivered papers there as part of his paper route. And Anne-Marie's house was just a block away from his uncle's house, which is where they first lived when they moved to Tacoma before his mother met Johnny and they moved in with Johnny. So Ted was very familiar with this part of Tacoma. It was, it was literally an area that he'd been to several times that he visited on his paper route. So it's not as if, even though he lived a few miles away, that he had never known this part of town. He was very very familiar with it and the crime itself matches something that a peeping tom would do there was a, a shoe print that was found in the dirt underneath her window on a bench had been moved and the shoe print i want to say was something like a size eight so they considered likely to be too small to be a full-grown adult male they thought it might be related to somebody roughly Ted's age at the time, roughly 14 years old. 
and the victim's age herself, she's eight. And we know that he had targeted younger children in his past that he brought back into the woods with him. And so an eight-year-old would be somebody that would be easy for a 14-year-old to control. If this had been another 14-year-old girl or 16 or 18-year-old woman, I don't know that it'd be as likely, unless she was really small, really petite, that she would have been a likely victim. But a lot of people believe that Ted, that the size that he was at 14, uh, with his proclivity for window peeping and his obsession with causing terror to others, and his familiarity with the area, everything fit that he would be a prime candidate for this to be one of his first murders, if not his first murder. But Ted denied any involvement in the crime, but he also claimed to commit several more murders than the ones he would eventually admit to. And we'll talk about in part three, but he eventually claims to have killed over 100 people, although he only confessed to killing 30. And some experts point to the fact his first confessed murder, which is, this is 1961 that Anne Marie Burr is killed. His first confessed murder is in 1974. And the way that he conducts that murder is seen by some experts to be too well organized to be his first murder. And then he's going to go on to commit about a murder a month from that point on and experts again believe there's no way that he commits almost a perfect murder and then continues a pace of roughly one a month from that point on they believe there was previous murders ones that where he honed his skills prior to 1974 and some believe it goes all the way back to this 1961 murder and other than his arrest for trying to steal the car, he was also arrested for burglary as a teen. And as I mentioned, the crime against Anne-Marie fits the profile of someone who liked to peep in windows and wasn't afraid to enter somewhere he wasn't supposed to be. He was also well known to have liked to torture young children, so it's not too hard to believe he could have committed an act of sexual and or homicidal violence against someone as young as 8 when he was 14 years old. In 2011, a sample of possible suspect DNA from Anne-Marie's case was sent off to be compared to Ted's known DNA in CODIS, but it was found that the sample did not contain enough viable DNA for comparison. There is hope that advancements in DNA technology could one day change that and close the Anne-Marie case after 60 plus years. Anne-Marie's case opens up the possibility of Ted being an active murderer as early as 1961 at age 14. While he's not openly linked to any other cases during the 1960s, it's clearly possible he could have been active as a killer during his high school and early college years. After graduating high school in 1965, Ted started attending classes at the University of Puget Sound before transferring to the University of Washington in 1966. The following year, in 1967, he started dating a woman named Diane Edwards, and they developed a serious romantic relationship. Ted fell strongly in love with Diane and considered her both extremely attractive and very sophisticated. But he wasn't sure what he wanted to do with his life, which led him to drop out of college in early 1968, and for a time period he worked a bunch of low-wage jobs and volunteered on some political campaigns in the Seattle area. And I read this part where it talks about him being madly in love with Diane. I think that's going to fly in the face of what some psychologists will say later on. Uh, he's going to be diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, and a lot of the times people with that disorder really can't feel love. They can't feel emotions such as love. I think it's more of an obsession, uh, to be honest. I think he was obsessed with her beauty. 
he was obsessed with her sophistication. The term nowadays I think you use is arm candy when a guy starts a relationship with a really attractive woman that when she's standing arm to arm with him, it's, it's his trophy, it's his thing to show off. And I think that's what happened with Diane here is, is Ted saw her and it wasn't so much love, it was that he wanted Diane as his possession. He wanted to be able to show her off. He wanted to be able to claim her as his. And so while some sites use the term fell in love or romantic relationship, I honestly think it was more that he found a woman that met his high expectations and he was literally obsessed with with having her in his life as his trophy. And while he's going through this period where he's dropping out of school, transferring schools, working part-time jobs, Diane had graduated from the University of Washington and obtained her first job in San Francisco. Ted visited there during the summer of 1968 and decided to stay in California after earning a scholarship to Stanford University. Their relationship ended in the fall of 1968 when Diane broke up with Ted due to his lack of ambition and his immaturity. It's likely that Diane was looking for that next chapter in life, which was a house, a husband, kids, etc., and Ted was far from settling down and focusing on a single track in life. So while Ted's obsession is having Diane in his life, he doesn't have a whole lot of other goals or aspects, which to me, the irony here is that he spent his entire childhood making fun of, of Johnny, his adopted father, for just being this cook at an army base. He claimed he was unmotivated, not intellectual enough, only working these low-wage minimum job, and he spent his entire childhood provoking Johnny, making fun of him for this, and when he finally gets to be an adult and he's going off to all these different colleges, he can't maintain focus on his studies. He can't set a, a path for him either to stay at the same school and graduate with a degree he ends up dropping out of two different schools and working all of these part-time and then volunteer style jobs so basically he's the self-fulfilling prophecy where everything that he made fun of johnny for he's now living that life and of course when diane and him first met he's in college he's pursuing a degree he's a very good talker so he's likely telling her that he's going to get this degree and he's going to go work a, a high-paying job and he can provide for her and and they can have this the American dream style family and the more she's with him the less motivated he gets and eventually he's going to drop out of these couple schools he's going to be working these dead-end jobs and she's going to look at him eventually and see this is not a guy with with the future he's he's not going anywhere he's only going to drag me down i've got big plans i want to have this certain life and ted is not the guy that's going to help provide that type of life with me so she ends up breaking up with them which of course ted doesn't understand that it's he is acting just as johnny actually he's acting worse than johnny did because at least johnny had steady income and provided a house and and food on the table and that kind of stuff for Johnny and his step-siblings and his mother. So Ted's in an even worse position, but he doesn't understand that 
in order for him to maintain Diane in his life or him to quote unquote keep this trophy, he has to focus on his studies and set a career path and all that kind of stuff. So this is going to cause Ted, who's already suffering from some pretty severe issues, to make a major change in his life. He drops out of Stanford, so this is his third college he's now left, and he travels east, and he left California, made stops in Colorado, Arkansas, I think he had some family in Arkansas, and he ends up in the childhood area of Philadelphia, where his grandparents live, and he enrolls at Temple University for one semester during 1969. So it's it's not as if this breakup with Diane cured him of his lack of focus. He's, I guess maybe some could argue he's out there trying to find himself or whatever he's doing. Uh, he's, he's made this trip east. He's made this trip back to his, his hometown from when he was a very young child. And maybe he thinks since Washington was the source of all of his grief the the move out to Washington State going back to his childhood will solve his issues Uh, but while he's out here he's also trying to discover where he's from so some people think that the entire point of this trip out east and enrolling his university was that he could try to discover who his real father is I think that was always the the dream that he had that he would find out that his father is this famous rich person and then he'd be set for life and so he eventually he's going to visit the office of birth records for the county he was born in and he learns that his father is listed as an unknown on the birth certificate and whoever this man is ted now has it's confirmed that this man abandoned him and his mother before he was even born so, so not only does he not know who his father is, the chance he's going to figure out who his father is is pretty limited because this amounts to more or less of either a one-night stand or at least a very short romance between his mother and this man. And once this guy's figured out that there's a child on the way, he pulls the plug and, and runs. And, and while Ted had probably already felt this was what had happened seeing it on a birth certificate solidified that he was a bastard which is a term that he would actually use with a lot of his relatives Uh, i think some people said to him it's not a big deal there's a lot of kids out there that don't have fathers and he would often refer to himself as well you don't know what it feels like to be a bastard and he really put a lot of weight to that term and he not only saw it as somebody who didn't have a father he saw it as somebody who was unwanted and unplanned and after learning this information he flees from philadelphia area again probably was out there on this hail mary hoping to find his true father and and realign his life instead it's it's gone back into shambles so he returns to washington state in late 1969 Upon his return, he started dating Elizabeth Klepfer, a single mother from Ogden, Utah, who worked at the University of Washington. They would eventually have a seven-year-long drama-filled relationship, but during the time, Ted would become somewhat of a father figure to Elizabeth's daughter, Molly. Molly was three when Ted and her mother started dating, and as an adult, she reported that during the later years of her mother's relationship with Ted, he was physically and sexually abusive towards her. But this was unknown to Elizabeth, and Ted did his best to present himself as anything but the immature and unambitious man Diane had left him for being. 
1970, Ted re-enrolled at University of Washington and decided to pursue a degree in psychology. His intelligence and his newly found ambition landed him on the honor roll, and he was said to be well-liked by his peers and his professors. So at this point in his life, we've, we've determined that for Ted, it's not a lack of intellectual ability. It is literally a, a, a lack of whether it be attention span, ambition, kind of a combination. When Ted wants to apply himself to education, he's able to get great grades. He's able to make the honor roll. His professors like him. My fellow students said he, you know, he was fine as a, as a fellow student. So it's not as if as in some cases we covered, some of these serial killers or, or, or killers have an extremely low IQ, they can't function in society, they, a lot of them can be illiterate. That's not the case with Ted. He definitely has the intelligence to do what he wants to do, it's just whether or not he applies himself. So there's an entire plan behind what the motivation is here for him that we'll get to eventually, but he's going to not only apply himself in studies he's going to start moving up in life in terms of his political standing and different things and as as ironic as this next part of his life might be it's reported in 1971 that ted took a job with a suicide crisis hotline it was at this job that he met ann rule the future best-selling author and one-time seattle police officer Despite her experience as a police officer, Anne would later state in her book about Bundy called The Stranger Beside Me that Ted didn't present as anything other than a kind, solicitous, and empathetic person. And those are the words she used in her book. So a lot of people say police officers have like a sixth sense about people, that once you've done enough years as a police officer, and I don't know how many years Anne did serve as a police officer, but once you've dealt with enough quote-unquote bad guys and bad girls, you'll have this feeling around people that they're not who they claim to be. And some people are better at that than others, and there's no requirement for that for being a police officer. It does make your job easier if you have it. But there are certain police officers that always seem to know when they're dealing with somebody who is lying about who they are or can get people to confess to things However, some people are just better at it than others, but Anne worked the suicide hotline with Ted Bundy, and she's using these words, kind, solicitous, and empathetic, and these are three things that, knowing what we know now, that he has this anti-social personality disorder that literally he shouldn't be able to have. So he is such a con man that he's able to turn himself into this completely different person than who he is on the inside, uh, and present that to people who are at least somewhat close enough to him to, to think they know who he is. And his ambition and dedication paid off, and he graduated from the University of Washington in 1972. He reconnected with his love for politics by joining then-Washington Governor Daniel Evans' re-election campaign. In an act of political subterfuge, Ted posed as a college intern and joined the opposition's campaign and reported back on information he found on Governor Evans' opponent, such as the content of his stump speeches. And I'm not familiar with political campaigns. I assume that stuff like this goes on more often than is reported. I don't know the legality of it. Um, Obviously, there's the whole situation with Watergate and different political conspiracies that have occurred since then. Again, 
just reading this, I, I, I went, it just seems really strange that somebody's able to just join a campaign as basically a mole and then report all this information back. And, and maybe it was easier to do in 1972 than it would be able to do today with emails and text messages and all that kind of stuff. But he's able to do this and then he's rewarded, which again, this is what shocks me, is because after he helps get Governor Evans reelected, he gets appointed to the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee and eventually he's hired as an assistant to the chairman for the Republican Party of Washington State. So it's not as if he did this job and they patted him on the back and said, thanks, now go have a good life. After he works for the opposition and that person gets elected, he comes back to the the side he really supports and they give him all types of appointments and rewards and all that kind of stuff. And, and how are you not on the other side saying, hey, wait a second, that guy that worked for me is now assistant assistant to the chairman of the Republican Party of Washington State and and he worked on my com- campaign as, as a Democrat like again I, I don't understand how all that stuff works that's some HBO miniseries right there in and of itself but he did what he did he gets his rewards for it and his political connections then were able to get him entrance to the University of Puget Sound and University of Utah law schools despite his less than stellar LSAT scores. So again, Ted's trying to make something of himself. He's got this master plan. We're going to learn about it very soon, but because he's willing to do this dirty work behind the scenes for the politicians, he's now cashing in all of these favors and there's rewards to include he when he wants to go to law school, he takes the LSATs and passes but doesn't do great. I mean, law schools are going to look at your LSAT scores and and if you score very high you got a better chance of getting in but he's able to get letters of recommendation from all of these political bigwigs that he's tied into with the Republican Party out in Washington State and because they're often associated with either professors or administrators at these law schools these letter recommendations carry a lot of weight and he's able to get into a couple different law schools despite scores that normally would have probably prevented him from getting in. And Ted returned to California for political work in 1973, and he met up with his old girlfriend, Diane Edwards. She would later state that she was shocked by the success Ted had since she broke up with him, and the two began dating again. This was while Ted was dating Elizabeth, and neither woman was aware of Ted's dual relationship status. In fall of 1973, Ted started attending law school at the University of Puget Sound, and Diane and him began to talk about getting married. She flew from California to Seattle several times to meet up with Ted, and he even introduced her to his boss at a holiday function as his fiance. Then in January of 1974, he broke off all communication with Diane. He refused to return her phone calls and ignored letters he received from her in the mail. The two finally spoke in February, and she demanded to know why he had ghosted her, and that's obviously a modern term, but best way I could describe what he did to her, and he told her he didn't know what she meant, and he hung up on her, and the two never spoke again. Ted would later tell people that his entire plan, after learning he was going to California, was to meet up with Diane and make her fall in love with him again. Once he knew she was madly in love with him, he wanted to break her heart like she had broke him. So again, we see this, the, the, the motivation for him to 
achieve the certain level of success, of course it is going to help him. He's going to move forward in life in ways that he wouldn't have if he had just maintained the college dropout minimum wage path. But he knows what Diane was looking for. So he makes all this effort over the course of a couple of years to become this guy that Diane wanted him to be. Once his plan is complete, he's able to actually go to California and I, I think he was planning this well before he knew he was going to California. I think he probably volunteered to go to California to make it easier for him to meet back up with Diane. But his entire thing was this obsession with the fact that he couldn't have her because she broke up with him. But if he could make her fall for him again, then he could possess her and then he could decide when he is done. And in the process... For him, it's a bonus that he gets to hurt her in such a way to make her feel like the, there was this future that she always wanted with Ted was there. He was up and coming in the political realm. He was going to be attending law school so she could marry a lawyer. Everything that she wanted was going to be there for her now. And just as he's talking about marriage and a future and all that kind of stuff, he purposely hurts her and breaks up all communication because that was his act of revenge on her for what she did to him and with the ending of that chapter of his life ted lost all motivation towards law school and started skipping classes and then stopped showing up for school altogether little did anyone know ted had found a new motivation and as of spring of 1974 arrived he had already embarked on the reign of terror that would make his name a household name and so in the next two episodes, we're going to discuss his crimes and his captures, his escapes, his trials, and eventually his execution and some follow-up after that. But we've got a lot to get to. This is going to be the shortest of the episodes so far. Uh, the next episodes are going to be rather lengthy, so just make sure to stick around, catch parts two and three of the Ted Bundy series on True Blue Crime. So thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.